Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Chris Chappell. Chris is Doshi Professor of Indic and Comparative Theology at Loyola Marymount University. He served as Assistant Director of the Institute for Advanced Studies of World Religions and taught Sanskrit, Hinduism, Jainism, and Buddhism for five years at the State University of New York at Stony Brook before joining the faculty at LMU. He has published more than a dozen books, including Karma and Creativity, and several translations and editions of Indian texts, including the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, the Bhagavad Gita, the Yoga Drishti Samuchaya of Haribhadra, and the Prithivi Sukta section of the Atarva Veda. In 2013, Chris founded and currently directs the Master of Arts in Yoga Studies program at LMU. So with that, hello, Chris. Thanks so much for joining me again. <laughs> Thank you, Jacob. It's really good to be here. So for those that are listening, this is actually Chris and I's second attempt at recording this. Unfortunately, we talked for about 30 minutes, and then I realized that our recording technology was not functioning. So Chris has been very generous with his time to start from the beginning once again. So to do that, Chris, um, I'll just start with the same question we started with before, which is, uh, what is the you know story of your practice and what has led you to the work that you do? Okay. Well, I grew up in a very rural part of the country, uh, midway between Rochester and Niagara Falls. And I grew up really in the midst of apple orchards. My parents were outdoors types and they really fostered um, a way of being in the world amongst their six kids where they were sort of hands off and it was the dogs and eventually the horses and, and just sort of idyllic pastoral and very humble in some ways. My father had trained in forestry, had been involved a little bit with aviation, but was a foundry worker. My mother uh, had been a science teacher, was raising these six kids. And eventually, 1961 happened. I turned seven in 1961, and there were three books that appeared from the, the public library in Lindenville, New York. And the three books were On the Beach, about the horrors of nuclear war. Second book was The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, which mm -hmm. inspired my mother to go back to graduate school and become a librarian herself. And the third book was Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. And this book warns about the dangers of our infatuation with technology and our blind eye toward the difficulties inflicted by pollution. So we learned the birds, we learned the flow of the seasons, we learned rough and tumble, the six of us, what it was to be um, in a family. And then in high school, we had this remarkable course that had just been added to the curriculum. And for 10 weeks, we studied India every day. For 10 weeks, we studied East Asia, China and Japan for every day. For 10 weeks, we studied Africa. And for 10 weeks, we studied Latin America. And as my project for this wonderful ninth grade social studies adventure, I connected with Philip Kaplow, who had just recently established the Zen Center of Rochester, New York, read his book, began my Zen practice at the age of 13. And 
that launched me on a commitment, an abiding commitment to explore the inner landscape, to really know my emotions and to figure out and sort out all of those places of the interior world. And I began reading Carl Jung. I was an avid reader of Psychology Today in the 1960s. It was the time of the birth of the transpersonal psychology movement out in these glorious unseen places called San Francisco and the Esalen Institute. But all of this was threaded into my high school experience, including reading very, very carefully the works of Mayor Baba and the works of Ramdas and that wonderful uh, book called Be Here Now. And when it came to going to college, I was um, entertaining uh, the notion of going to St. John's College. And I loved visiting there, 700 people, Annapolis, Maryland, the third oldest institution of higher education. For the first two mm -hmm. years, you read Euclid and Aristotle and all of the originators of Western civilization in the Greek. And then for the last two years, you read Descartes, you read Sartre, you read Camus, all of the modern creators of our world in the original French. And as I was invited there, because I came from a very, very small high school, we didn't really know anything about um, you know, placement exams or we had the SATs, but these things called achievement tests or APs, they were utterly foreign to our very humble uh, high school. So they invited me to stay and I stayed for three days and I was accepted. It was really quite an honor. But when I came back, I talked to my guidance counselor and I said, you know, I think the world already knows about Greece and France. I loved ninth grade. So he advised me, he said, go to the largest state university you can. And I also was money sensitive um, and I would have had to take out a loan to go to this, you know, very elite liberal arts college. So I signed up and showed up at Buffalo. And it was a moment where our senior class had all been tear gassed. The freshmen oh were all benefiting from their labor and we were given permission to allow anybody at Buffalo to come in and teach. And I could have gone many different ways. In fact, I thought of studying Quechua language and continuing with my studies of Spanish. I'd already had a really good grounding in French. But what happened was I found a class in Sanskrit and I walked in and we chanted the Bhagavad Gita, we chanted mantra, we did. In a, in a university class, you chanted. Yeah, absolutely. And twice a week in the afternoon, we shared vegetarian food together. And my eyes just got bigger and bigger as I saw this remarkable undertaking. And my ears began to hurt when I realized that just as I'd had a dissonance having studied philosophy as a high school student at State University of New York at Geneseo. And I realized that, wow, this guy called Descartes, I don't really agree with him. The separation, this idea of, you know, the human supremacy, this idea that the natural world is just a dead thing. Okay, that's, that's, not, that's not me. 
And similarly, as there was this very devotional language about a, a, a transcendent who is the author and the controller of all things, that particular theology didn't really capture me, although I sure liked the chanting and the singing. But that same semester in a different philosophy course, we were reading the structure of scientific revolutions by Thomas Kuhn, and we were reading the, um, the only book at that time written by Carlos Castaneda, which was The Teachings of Don Juan. And as we were reading uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, this eight o'clock in the morning, this, this woman from Long Island and the demographics of, of uh, New York State and of SUNY particularly were very interesting because there was this big divide between the upstaters and the downstaters, <laughs> the Long Islanders who had that interesting <laughs> accent and came from a, a very, very, very different life experience. And she and shared as her life experience of having a guru, having a teacher of yoga at an ashram in Amityville, New York. So November, first Thanksgiving break, I traveled down there and I met this woman who had established Yoga Anand Ashram and I was so deeply moved. She grew up in colonial India, she grew up uh, studying yoga from the age of eight. She grew up and became a successful performer of Bharatanatyam. And for a variety of life circumstances, um, lived through Gandhian salt marches, but found herself a beneficiary of the opening through civil rights of the American demographic. And she became one of the very early Indian immigrants allowed by law. And she spoke so glowingly of the high level of consciousness achieved by Martin Luther King Jr. And her colleagues elsewhere in the country were um, Swami Vishnu Devananda, who would visit from Canada, Swami Satchidananda, who eventually built Yogaville in Virginia, Swami Rama, who had um, a wonderful community in Madison and in Wisconsin and eventually in Pennsylvania, Amrit Desai, whose successors uh, established Kripalu. And she, um, having uh, married uh, and settled uh, on Long Island, raising three kids, brought to us this uh, very reflective philosophical approach to yoga. And I traveled there with my girlfriend at Christmas, and she, Maureen, applied for admission at Stony Brook, the local SUNY school, and I arranged to transfer, and it was the most sublime um, moment. Um, unlike Buffalo, where my mother had uh, received her BA in the 30s and goes back to the 19th century, Stony Brook was created anew. Yeah. And now as a professor, I appreciate the rawness of the place. Um, virtually no one had tenure. It was the best and the brightest from all over the world. And we were gifted with the presence of this remarkable institute with 100,000 volumes and the best Buddhist scholars in the world landing at Stony Brook. We had the benefit in the philosophy department of this remarkable scholar of 
of really all things Indian. He was an expat um, running away, in a sense, from Franco's fascism in Spain. At the age of 16, landed at a Jesuit seminary in India where he trained for 12 years in philosophy and then left that to join the Gujarat Vidyapi, the university established by Mahatma Gandhi to see through the vision of nonviolence and satyagraha, of holding to truth. And for three years, he chanted Gita. For three years, he spun and he wove and he learned uh, Gujarati and Sanskrit and Hindi, adding that on to his English and his Spanish and his Hebrew and his Greek and his Latin. And in 1967, he landed at Haight-Ashbury and was teaching philosophy at University of San Francisco with his master qualifications from India, and then realized, oh, America, this is where the world is shifting, came to New York, did his PhD at Fordham, and was hired to bring Indian philosophy to the world through Stony Brook. And we sat with him through every verse of the Bhagavad Gita as he perfected his translation of the Bhagavad Gita and wrote his second book called Avatara. And we learned from him the Vedas. And we helped with him as he formulated the book called Meditations through the Rig Veda. And he married the complementarity that is hard woven into the multiplicity of gods and goddesses. He married that with quantum theory in a very responsible and thoughtful way. In that book, in the in book, book Meditations Through the Rig Veda? Through the Rig Veda, really quite um, a marvelous way to learn about modern ways of thinking and to explore these traditions of Indra and Agni and Sarasvati and Lakshmi. It's, it was just, absolutely exhilarating. And then in the evening, we brought our interest in philosophy into our community. And our community, our ashram community, never larger than about 100 people. Many of them um, were GED folks that mm -hmm. were um, sort of learning life from the inside, working as drivers, working in, in restaurants. And what we did is that we committed ourselves to study in the ashram. And we read the Sankhikarika verse by verse over the course of a full year. And then eventually, as some of us advanced, um, some others followed the clarion call to university and to graduate school. We spent seven years translating the Yoga Sutra going through all the existing translations, going through the Vyasa commentary, through the Vichinana Bhikshu commentary, and reflecting on how our lives in daily, daily grind of Long Island could be reshaped by reflection of the wisdom of these philosophical schools. And we were able, through our studies of Nietzsche and through our studies of Kierkegaard and through our studies of one of our other inspiring professors, Thomas Altizer, the, the, at the foreground, the vanguard of the Death of God movement that was reshaping how Christians think about themselves. And in the midst of um, our, our Jewish colleagues uh, who were learning and, and really experimenting with Heschel and with Huber, 
about how to bring the texture of lived experience into the project of day-to-day -day life. So in the ashram, in the midst of our philosophical studies, uh, we also uh, became entrepreneurs. And we created Santosha Vegetarian Dining. I literally cooked my way through graduate school. There's <laughs> nothing quite as exhilarating as being reviewed by the food critic of the New York Times nicely. And we <laughs> opened our doors to um, invite people of the South Shore of Long Island to experience vegetarian cuisine. We also created a bookstore and community education center. And for many of these high school dropouts, their introduction to complex thought was through learning Sanskrit grammar. And we would hold classes where they learned the Devanagari, they learned all eight cases of what it means to decline. And they, as I said, uh, experienced the Yoga Sutra directly. Our yoga training required us to memorize the entire second pada of the Yoga Sutra in Sanskrit, to be able to chant it in group. And because I had all this other grammar going on in my head, uh, they, because they were just more orally inclined, they were much better at it, my colleagues, than, than myself. And it was just a, a time of robust um, performance and participation in yoga. This is throughout the 1970s. Then toward the end of the 70s, Jonestown happened, and there was this tamping down of the great experiment that began in the 1960s. And with the election of Ronald Reagan and the return of Republicans to the, um, to the White House in the 1980s, and with the rise of Margaret Thatcher in England, there was just this clamping down of human possibility into a materialism that uh, diminished the interest in yoga, diminished our, um, our regular, the numbers of people that would just simply show up. We carried on with our work. And eventually, I was um, invited into a tenure-track position in Los Angeles. And moving out here in 1985 was quite um, an opportunity to uh, bridge not only East Coast and West Coast, but the 1890s, which was the origin point of Swami Vivekananda here in Los Angeles, Many people don't realize that Raja Yoga, which sort of introduced the world to the whole process of meditation, was written out here in Southern California in Pasadena. Oh, wow. And I was able to be in the presence of Gayatri Devi, who had been part of that moment from the 1920s and had led another ashram called Yoga Ananda Ashram in La Crescenta, California. And I chanted with her the new year, the dawn, January 1st, 1986, and felt that heart connection all the way back, not only to Swami Vivekananda, but also to Paramahansa Yogananda. All of that, which had energized California in the 1890s, energized William James in Cambridge, led to the establishment of the Vedanta Society in New York City, all of that had been brought to a halt in 1920. Asian Exclusion Act, the first of them, 1880, no more Chinese, 
Never were women allowed to migrate. But in 1920, the Indians were cut off. And it was not until 1965, 45 years later, were Indians allowed? Were Chinese? They weren't allowed in the country for 45 years? 45 years, okay. That is insane. And it's called racism. <laughs> yes, it is. Rani Anjali and heard her speak right from the beginning. She lifted up and presented gratitude to Martin Luther King Jr. And one of the gifts of being here in California is being in the presence several times of James Lawson. If you saw the movie Selma, he's the one who trained Martin Luther King Jr. He's the one who trained Rosa Parks. He'd done jail time because of his uh, refusal to be complicit with the Korean War. He was in jail. We got out of jail in the early 1950s. He too traveled to India and he went straight to the area. Bonobabave and the successors of Gandhi were training workers in nonviolent protest. And for three years, from 1952 to 1955, he learned about Satyagraha. He learned how to, as had my own guru participated, he learned how to participate in boycott, to stand up, to speak truth to power, and to bring that yoga back to the United States. Mm -hmm. And he brought that yoga in the 50s to those leaders, including John Lewis, who stood up and said no more to racism. Those laws were overturned. And when those laws were overturned, the Jim Crow laws and the immigration laws, now we have the gift of pluralism in the United States and we continue to draw from that reserve of Vedic knowledge in order to figure out, as Rodney King said, how can we get along? Mm -hmm. Can't we just get along? And India has been getting along with all manner of, of issues and ideas and thoughts and uh, different types of people for millennia. And now we are living out that world and it is a world that embraces pluralism. Mm, mm. Wow, I'm so glad we did this uh, a second time because the whole arc of that, you know, early history and um, and and your own story uh, uh, aligned with your studies and your yoga practice was so beautiful and 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 fascinating. So um, uh, I've, I mean, I have a number of questions. What one is that, you know, just to sort of. Um, since I asked it before, I'm interested to know, you know, you're talking about the 80s with the return of the Republicans and, and a kind of um, uh, the, the kind of closure of a certain, you know, degree of possibility. And then we have, you know, in the 90s, the resurgence, um, what we talked about being the third wave of, you know, yoga practice or, or um, the thriving of, of, of uh, the, this Eastern wisdom. So, you know, what are your observations, you know, given that you're coming from, like you've been saying, a very Gandhian, um, politicized, social justice kind of enriched Eastern philosophy, yoga understanding, what are your observations of, of this new wave that seems, you know, quite commercialized, quite capitalistic, and very much married with the political status quo, it seems to me? Okay, it was very interesting to move to California in 1985 to leave behind our very traditional 
lifestyle. We had a lot of co-housing. We had these businesses that continued to carry on. And then to come out to California in 1985 and see that original first wave yoga from the 90s, the 1890s, yeah. and that had been created by Yogananda and the Vedanta Society, and to see that that was different because we were utterly on the floor. And when we walked into the Vedanta Society and we walked into the Self-Realization Fellowship, we sat in pews. And they had utterly accommodated themselves to yeah. Protestant spirituality, whereas we had um, lived, we had transformed our bodies. So we were floor-dwelling bodies in the ashram. And that was curious. And we were um, busy um, with uh, bringing our, first our son and our, and our daughter into the world here. And we then began to notice in the 90s, the opening first of yoga works of the uh, Forest Yoga Academy. And in the 90s, some of the folks that lived in Los Angeles had traveled and found Patapi Joyce, found Mr. Iyengar, found uh, Mr. Deshikachar, three different areas of India. Meanwhile, the Shivananda place, yeah. which had been originally established by Swami Vishnu Devananda in the 60s on Sunset Boulevard, had moved to Larchmont, slow and steady, had been teaching asana classes. And I began a regular asana class with the Shivananda Center, which was close to campus. And I went to my dean and I said, you know, there's this, this movement, this energy in Los Angeles that is connected with yoga. And I have a lot of training, my expertise, my Sanskrit study, my publications, they're about this. I'd like to invite some of these people on. My very first dean onto campus, my very first dean said, you need to get tenure, you need to be published, you need to just slow down. So I said, <laughs> okay. And then very quietly, I set up a little series of lectures and I invited a couple of wonderful philosophers over from India. And the yoga people started showing up. And then by 1996, we started a study group actually in my home every third Wednesday, and we convened for five years. We had people from the Vedanta Society, we had people from the Yogananda community, we had people from the Shivananda Ashram, we had disciples of Amachi, we had disciples of Guru Ma'i, she was in full flower. Um, I had taught, I'd run with various leaders well known. Uh, workshops, week-longs at South Fallsburg, and we had people from sociology and from classics, and we gathered. Usually about 15 people would show up, and we would chant the Yoga Sutra, we would discuss it. We've worked from a, tra a translation that I published with our ashram community some years ago in India. And I went to yet another dean, and I said, you know, we have all of these wonderful people. I want to start a graduate program. And this dean looked at me and she said, you've been meeting with people in your house? Uh, <laughs> she was just completely uh, yeah. by this. So uh, calm down. <laughs> and then another dean came along. So we're on to a third dean and a, a sequence of you know, administrators come and go. And I pitched the idea of a, of a graduate program. And he said, my neighbor 
and he was a, a, a so the first was a Jesuit, the second was a nun. Now the third dean is a, an Asian American of Chinese descent. And he said, well, my neighbor does yoga. And I asked her about this, Chris, and she says, you don't need to know anything to do yoga. <laughs> and I'm thinking, <laughs> in my PhD, I publish, I speak, uh, but I just sort of sat passively and placidly received this, this uh, disrespect. And then he said, but uh, you could do something in extension. So in January 2002, um, sort of stumbling out of the generational trauma, my um, childhood generation, of course, was the assassination of JFK and Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. And I remember that moment, that morning, when my daughter was um, 11 years old, saying, your generation will be defined by this day by September 11th, 2001. Right. And the whole culture was in shock and looking for how to connect with meaning. And the old answers weren't working. And the, and the government answer was to go shop. Yeah. And the traditional religious response was, look at those people that practice a different religion. They're evil. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, we needed something else. So the third path that we created was first a philosophy certificate, a yoga philosophy certificate. And we invited in people from all of those communities to study Sanskrit, to study the Bhagavad Gita, to study the Upanishads, to study the Yoga Sutra, to study the underpinning of the Yoga Sutra, which is the Sankhya Karika, to explore Buddhism, to explore Jainism. And we began these 10 hour courses, 20 hour courses, when hundreds of people came, and then we started a certificate in yoga and ecology. We started a certificate, which is now a, a four or five year training in yoga therapy. We started a certificate with uh, Srivetsa Ramaswamy, the only surviving person directly trained by Krishnamacharya. We started a certificate eventually in yoga, mindfulness, and social change. And once we had graduated hundreds from these certificates and became rather well known through the Los Angeles basin and beyond for this good work, another dean came and said, you know, you should start a graduate program in that. And I just, you know, placidly said, yeah, we could look into that. What a good idea. I'm so glad you thought of that. And then there was a five-year approval process. And then in 2013, we were able to welcome our first graduate students in. And they now are full-time uh, studying language, studying the body, studying philosophy, traveling to India, forming community with one another, developing their own specialized interests, and then carrying that work out into the world. So this is, I think, elevating um sort of the profile of yoga um absolutely yeah. a little bit of dignity and allowing uh, making good on something that just by nature of how capitalism works if you're going to meet somewhere you got to pay the rent if you're going to pay the rent you got to come up with a reason for people to come back and now what in my childhood and in my young adulthood was a few thousand people all over the country 
spending $5 for a yoga experience has now grown into thousands and thousands of yoga teachers, millions, 20 million people doing yoga on a regular basis. And what we feel that we can do just in a small way is to provide um, a gateway into a nuanced understanding and an historical understanding and a philosophical engagement of this tradition that has shaped the world in countless ways. Yeah, I mean, I, th I, I really appreciate what you said about raising the dignity of yoga because I think, you know, one of, there, there seems to be like two directions now and maybe those directions have always existed, but there's the direction towards sort of a, a, you know, a diminished attention to all of the, you know, a rigorous understanding of the historical philosophical tradition, not to mention a rigorous understanding of, you know, the physiology of the body and, and, and we're seeing that decline in, in, in the, perv, you know, the pervasiveness of yoga teacher trainings, which are not exactly, you know, it's just, so, it's so easy to create a yoga teacher training program. <laughs> I, I know I've, I've put one together, not that ours wasn't good, but that it was just so easy based on Yoga Alliance's requirements to, you could have put, I could have written anything down and, you know, what are they going to do? They just put a stamp on it and they take your money and that's it. But, you know, but then you have this program, uh, at, that you've you know created, which is really you know showing and raising the bar on the level of education, and I think it's so important um, as we move into a time where you know maybe we're going to want to be able to distinguish or discern between those 200-hour teachers who you know just did theirs at their local gym versus those that spent years studying the philosophy and the history and have a kind of nuanced and sophisticated understanding. And, and those are the teachers that I want to go to. That's the yoga that I want to participate in. You yeah. know, I don't want to. I don't want to participate in the in the cheap kind of gym yoga that has sort of emerged. Um, so. I was actually one thing that I was just curious about is there are there any programs like the one at LMU I mean are there other yoga studies programs yet that took that's you know emerged after you, you created your program or is it still just you guys um, well SOAS which is the school of oriental yes. and African studies at University of London uh, launched a one-year program that does not require the language nor does it require the, the physical understanding there's another program um, in Italian at University of Venice in Italy, an American-trained scholar of Sanskrit of Italian origin, but he did his PhD with Stephen Phillips in philosophy and with Patrick Olivelle in Indian philosophy and in Sanskrit at the University of Texas. So those two in Europe. And then there's a University of Health Sciences in Maryland that has uh, started a yoga therapy program. And then there's talk of uh, the development of a program at Graduate Theological Union, which just opened a Hindu Studies unit. There's talk of a new program in yoga and psychotherapy at Meridian, Un Meridian University in Petaluma, California, but I don't think they've launched yet. And they're trying to recruit faculty at Naropa University in Boulder, and I think they're on the verge of creating something um, on the yoga side at Naropa, uh, and we have continued, and we welcome um, for this program uh, to be uh, challenged with the growth of other programs, and we're just thrilled that we're able to carry forward. With the yeah, I mean, and, and it doesn't seem like the interest in that education is going anywhere soon. In fact, perhaps the, the you know, the, the, 
the bourgeoisie of more programs on, you know, in the community will encourage those who have done a, just a simple 200 hour teacher training to, you know, further educate themselves so that the, yeah. the, the quality can, you know, can be enriched across the board. So, um, well, one thing I really appreciated about something you mentioned on the Spirit Matters podcast is that you you talk about, and we haven't really talked about, we talked about Sanskrit before in the podcast, but we haven't talked about, you talked about what are the benefits of studying Sanskrit. And I thought what you said on that um, podcast was so interesting. So I'd love to kind of ask you the same question, basically. What are the benefits of studying a language like Sanskrit? And, and you know, and what are the key features that d distinguish a, a language like Sanskrit from, you know, any other modern language? Yeah, first of all, I want to talk about um, a symptom that is not a good sign. Okay. <laughs> and PhD programs in philosophy around the nation are saying that all you need to do to be a philosopher is to know English. Yeah. And historically, to have a doctorate meant that you had to know at least two other languages sufficiently well to read and grasp the ideas. So what I would first offer in um, sort of a considered objection to that move within the realm of philosophy, which is tending more and more toward a normative yeah. analytic that just says that what we can say in English is all that counts, is um, just sort of a shout out for um, the liberal arts education, but also a solid high school education. Because there comes that moment, whether it's French class or in Spanish class, how can you explain a quesadilla? Okay, a quesadilla, you have to use the word quesadilla. And burrito, okay, burrito, <laughs> like rap? No, a burrito is a burrito with all that's implied. And there is that moment where, and I love um, really the animated version, the Beauty and the Beast, you know, bonjour. And you just get it that bonjour means something very different than hello. Yeah. Or yeah. even close to good morning, but no, there's just something about bonjour. And this is the same in Sanskrit on just a merely cross-cultural level that there is not only in the enticement of the mix of syllables of namaste, but the combination with gesture, okay? The invocation of mudra with saying namaste and then learning from your yoga teacher and it's up for all manner of interpretation, I bow to you, okay? What does it mean to bow to someone? What does it mean? Does it mean that you're subservient? Mm -hmm. Does it mean that they're better than you? but then they return it. So does that mean that they're saying, you know, and then in Japan, of course, there's all manner, but this enactment of, um, of language through the performance of gesture. Okay, that's something that was thought through very, very carefully with mudra, as well as with mantra. Then also the choosing of name and the choosing of sound. And the linguists have more or less established that ma is pretty universal. Yeah. It's a deep structure that sort of comes out of that well of desire. And we look at mater, which comes straight out of Indo-European Sanskrit through all of these thousands of years. And it sounds the same, mater, mother, father, pitter, padre. Okay, these are 
from antiquity and they have a certain bodily resonance. What eventually emerged out of the Vedas, which go back at least 3,500 years, are these core sounds um, that are identified, that are organized, that allow through the chanting of mantra, not only for words to be articulated, but for the whole body to receive a massage in a sense. Mm -hmm. and, and I, I love, I was um, teaching a, a yoga training a couple of days ago, and I said, bring it on with those who want to make fun of Om. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember when Johnny Carson would just put on his, you'd have, you know, um, all of the, the greats, such as, you know, the movie stars that took up, and Allen Ginsberg would be on there, and he would make fun of Om, and Om can take it. Okay, and what happens with Om is that it comes from that well of darkness in the pit of the body and our, our viscera, and it sort of is pushed up with the diaphragm through the vibratory area of the ribs into the glottis and then up into the sinuses and then all the way through the entire course of the Sanskrit alphabet to the closing of the Anusvara with the closing of the lips and the vibration of a mmm. And it's, it brings peace to people. It yeah. really brings um, a change in relationship with the world. And that's um, to be learned. Okay? Panini, 2,500 years ago, laid out all of the rules about how we form language and when Panini was discovered in the 19th century and the modern discipline of linguistics was born, to this day, they use Panini's Sanskrit language to explain how words work because he figured it out. Mm. So yeah, we got to learn those other languages. We have to broaden our horizons and thank goodness that English is a language that invites in other cultures and other terms. So what I hear you saying and what I, what, and what I really appreciate is that is the idea that not there isn't sort of a one-to-one -one correspondence between you know the 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 words of one language and those of another that there's that by you know engaging with and expanding one's horizon through the learning of another language there's actually new sort of gradations and nuances of of meaning and experience that are cultivated is that part of the 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 promise Absolutely. And the one surviving beat poet, Gary Snyder, who cleaned up his life early on and studied Zen in Japan for a very, very long time, inspired a generation to think about the placement of words. He had been schooled in haiku and been schooled in how to articulate that Zen alacrity. But one of the great things about that Stony Brook moment, and I was a religious studies major, mainly courses in philosophy, and I was a comparative literature major. Mm -hmm. And I had the benefit of learning from people. We had uh, Amiri Baraka on the faculty. We had uh, Kofi Awunar, who was an African literateur. He wrote The Breast of the Earth, and we learned the theory of translating orality into the written word, but also the strategies, the mnemonic strategies of orality. 
we learned from Harvey Gross, who wrote a wonderful book called Sound and Sense. We recruited him into Stony Brook from Berkeley. We learned about alliteration, about assonance, about rhythm, about translation, and about how Dante best finds a home in English. And with that attention to the power of language and our own translation theory through Antonio de Nicolas, and he, native speaker of Spanish, had studied Hebrew, had studied Greek, had studied Latin in his Jesuit seminary, had studied Gujarati, had studied Hindi, had studied Sanskrit in his ashram experience in, in Gujarat, in Ahmedabad, and had reflected broadly on culture about how do you take a beautiful moment and put it into the English language. English is not necessarily very pretty. You have to slow it down. Yeah. What Hemingway did is that he unraveled that German paragraph. And I always love challenging students to read William James, who was pre-Hemingway. William James, where that paragraph is densely, densely packed. We don't often think about it, but the paragraph is the successor to Aristotelian logic. Mm. And every paragraph is supposed to follow that program that was put out by Aristotle, taken up by Thomas Aquinas, that we have a thesis, a premise, that we can prove this way, this way, this way, this way, and then we get a conclusion. And then you come up straight against shloka, where you are challenged to do all of that in 32 syllables. And in those 32 syllables, you can pack it in with literary allusions to the Vedas and the Upanishads, where you can pack it in with an amazing eight-syllable symmetry. And how do we create that into English? Maybe with blank verse, maybe sometimes with a rhyme. And one of the, the beauties of scholarship is to read all of the different choices made by the translators of the Bhagavad Gita. Franklin Edgerton, 100 years ago nearly, was a genius. And not only did he leave the syllabization the same, 32 syllables, but he left the word order the same. And on the one hand, it doesn't make any sense from time to time. But on the other hand, if you compare that with Laurie Patton's new translation, which is blank verse, and which actually allows the use of far more syllables, you begin to get a little bit of a sense of moving into a worldview that's meditative, moving into a worldview that values karma yoga, uh, being able to just let things happen and not get all wrapped up with your ego. You begin to get a sense of the elegant poetry that goes into the creation of a bhakti moment, of a devotional moment, of an experience not unlike that when we chant with Krishna Das, where the whole world all of a sudden takes on the tinge of pink or blue of the lotus or the skin of Krishna. And yeah, that's the gift of language, that's the gift of mantra. Yeah. And I've just been recently working with the root syllables that are attached in Tantra to the elements. And this new book that I have coming out that's called Living Landscapes in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jaina Yogas 
lifts up the elements, honoring my own teacher. Our training at Yoga Ananda Ashram, still in Amityville, New York, though our teacher sadly passed away in 2001, our training was deeply philosophical and deeply embedded within social justice. Every week, we were given a yama and a niyama to practice. And by practice, I mean, we were given ahimsa. We were given this word. We were given a couple of verses from the Yoga Sutra. And we were challenged to find ways in which to engage the world in the manner of nonviolence. We celebrated Gandhi. We thought about our food. We thought about our words. We thought about how do we lift a pencil? How do we place a sheet of paper upon a surface? For a full week, sometimes more, and we were invited to journal. And then another week, it would be truthfulness. How can I honor the spoken word? Part of our nonviolence was not to eat a full day every week. And part of our honoring of the spoken word through satya was to not speak for a full day. Mm. When you open your mouth and you engage words that Monday morning, what an amazing connection with the power of the word. And every word is like really a gift. Yeah that connects you with the power to claim things, with the power to name things. Going back to that Vedic hymn in honor of Vak, in honor yeah. of Vach, again, a cousin word of the English of vocabulary of voice. What a power. That's the goddess. And like that with the other um, life shapers of the yamas and the niyamas. And once we'd gotten that, in combination with alternate nostril breathing, and particularly the tribunda. The mulabandha bringing up on the inhale, the jalandhara bringing down from the heavens with the holding of the inhale, releasing both, giving the earth back to earth, our muscular releasing and connecting with the earth and our head floating back into the sky, but then Udhyanabandha. Okay, Mulaban lifting up, Jalandharaban pulling down, releasing both, but then with Jalandharaban creating that cave of silence within the body, holding that exhaled breath, which according to the Yoga Sutra is the gateway to luminosity. Doing that 10 times every day. Okay, this has been my practice for since 1972. So you can do the math. And what happens is that this brings a calmness to your physiology and you breathe less just by training yourself for those five minutes in the early morning. And then we were invited in about four months into yoga training into Prithividharana. And I remember living in Stony Brook and the month was October and our practice was to go out and find some dirt and put it on a plate. And I can still see that paper plate and I can still visualize that soil. And I lived on Palfrey Street, which is a medieval word for a service horse. And there was a truck farm there. 
and it was October, so the onions were all in full and they were just about to be harvested. There were potatoes and there were carrots and grabbing a clump of dirt from that farm and bringing it in and sitting for 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening and engaging Vitarka. And Vitarka from the first part of the Yoga Sutra says, use your thoughts. And sat there and I said, ah, dirt. And I knew two types of dirt from my childhood. One was Lake Ontario, lake bed soil that was very loamy, very dark, very filled with sediment, as well as with seashells because Lake Ontario used to be right where I rambled around. Mm. We lived north of the ridge and the ridge had been the boundary some thousands of years before. And then we'd moved wow. to a different um, geological site, the Genesee River Valley. And I knew that soil very well. It was uh, alluvial. It was um, not lake bed, but it was very active glacial moraine material. And the, and the landscape was very different. And the trees were different. Orchards by Lake Ontario. Uh, massive oaks that I learned historically had been cultivated by the Seneca Indians. Uh, Handsome Lake, who had revived the Seneca religion, was born in my hometown. And these oaks had been nurtured hundreds of years old, but the Iroquois and the Seneca local to us had done controlled burns to create these magnificent emergent oaks from pasture land and had manipulated the deer for the hunt. So all of these memories of childhood earth connection came forward out of the gazing upon the soil. And then, yeah, that's what the Tibetans call the fixed gaze. And we did tradikum, okay? We held our gaze, as you see in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. Yeah. Then the uprising, the standing up, the walking around meditations that would just flow spontaneously. And as I walked along the border of that farmland and through the woods that had been set aside in that Long Island development and clambered onto the campus bus to wend our way through the Ashley Schiff Nature Preserve and saw the second growth, not the old magnificent oaks, but the second growth oaks, which are now quite stately. But in the 1970s, they had only been there for about 20 years. Mm. And watching how those oaks on Long Island hold on to their leaves all the way till April, whereas in upstate, where the winter is much more severe, all the trees turn and lose their leaves in October, November. And then, you know, attuning to that rhythm and just feeling that bodily earth connection and seeing all these beautiful undergraduate students with different shades of hair and with okay 70s we were sort of things were happening you know platform shoes and disco and colors and and then realizing that all of this this glamour and people on the move and people on the make it's all made of earth our bodies come out of earth as does our food as do our textiles, as do the plates upon which we find and place our food, as does that school bus minted out of the same iron stuff that my father worked with in the foundry. And I 
reflect it back to the visits to the foundry and seeing that steel being poured and solidified and recognizing that it comes out of the stuff of the earth. And then we switched to water. And we had in the morning and in the night, okay, we had a open blank clear glass bowl and we just gaze, try to come on that water. And pretty soon you feel that saliva and pretty soon you recognize that, yeah, I peed this morning and I got married uh, later that year and by our, our guru. And she said, it was a very sexy ceremony. And she said, you know, you got the field, enjoy the field. That was the earth part of that connection. And then she reminded us, she said, from water you will you were born and through water you will bring forth life and eventually thankfully we did but water it's the giver of life it's the major constituent of our body and we feel that and long island we would come home after a late night at the ashram from the south shore to the north shore we would drive down to stony brook harbor and we would just sit and get out and at midnight, we would gaze into the North Shore, Long Island Sound, Stony Brook Harbor waters, and they gave us special surprises. And there were bioluminescent diadems. And we would just go, whoa, look at that. <laughs> and then on the weekends, okay, the best weather on Long Island is September, October. The water is still warm. And I would spend sometimes an entire day on Fire Island alone in silence and just intimacy with those Atlantic waves. And the ashram, uh, the, the canal would come straight up from South Bay to the ashram. And we would often go and gaze upon the water of South Bay, Great South Bay. And a lot of the guys in the ashram, um, I was the oddity, I was the college kid. I got others to follow me to college, but a lot of them were actually fishermen in the ashram, GED people. And they were really strongly built because they were clamors. This is before um, clamming was forbidden on Long Island due to the knowledge of pollution. Yeah. But they had incredible stories about their experiences um, on, this, on the bay. And then the next month came along and we did that single flame for 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night. And this became an extended reflection on energy. Okay, earth, prithivi, water, jal, or ap, fire, agni. And I remember that semester, I got a C minus on a philosophy paper that I had pre-cleared with my professor who has now departed. And the graduate student who graded that paper um, did not understand that no, fire for me is not a metaphor. Fire for me is a living, breathing reality. And I had taken the story of Icarus and I had married it with the Vedic invocation of fire. And he simply did not get it. And the fire in me welled up and I went back to <laughs> Professor Silverman, one of the great philosophers. He created actually the environmental philosophy and literature group. 
uh, one of the great um, continental philosophers of, 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 of that moment in the 70s. And I just sort of said to him, you know, I talked to you about what I'm doing with my philosophy. Your student did not get it, but you got to change that grade. And he said, you know how you don't want to throw your graduate assistant under the bus. But it was, it was one of those moments where the fire of ire was stirred up um, because of, of, of that friction, quite literally. And then we moved into air. Mm. And for that month of air, it was the winter. And the ice storms came. We had a very powerful ice storm that took out uh, the electricity for a period of time. And with those ice storms came some very driving winds. And there was this attunement um, to the quality of air in the winter, in the summer, in the spring. Memories of the gentle air coming off Lake Ontario in the summer. I had learned how to swim and uh, in Lake Ontario, our swimming lessons were there until the pollution count got, got known and we were kicked out of the lake. But then reflecting on the, on the, um, the Atlantic breeze and the difference of that breeze, and I carry that attunement to Long Island, from Long Island to California, where I live coastal, and we get a breeze every day at 1030. And I know biking in here today, that it will take me three minutes longer. Instead of 12 minutes, it takes me 15 minutes to bike because the ocean breeze is working against me. This is the life force outside and it's that rhythm of the breath through pranayama that brings us purification on the inside. And what we did was we just sort of looked at how the oak trees would move with the caress of the breeze. Long Island, suffused with magnificent oaks in the old growth forest on the North Shore, where my wife and I were caretakers at a Quaker meeting house, and scrub oaks on the, north, on the South Shore, and still the scrub oak forest doesn't grow They're very, very majestic. And then the fifth month was a practice that carried over um, into our depth training as pillars, as dharmacharyas within the ashram. And that fifth gaze, that fifth tradicum was into the sky. And the fifth element of Akash, no one can name it. It's the place where in Madhyamaka philosophy, you see the emptiness of yourself, okay? And you see the emptiness of all these things that you think are so real, all these people. And what are they? They're not really, they haven't always been here. They won't always be here. Of these things. And now I remember moving to California in 1985 and occupying my first professor office and being so embarrassed because I'd used a lot of library books and I always actually had worked with really great libraries at my disposal at my fingertips. And I had a box of books, right? And now I have so many books. I, you know, it's like, please take my books. But, uh, but that stuff, even the stuff of books, okay, where does it go? Eventually, 
you know, it doesn't last. It can be taken away in an instant. And that cleansing through absorption into the vastness of the sky, transformative. In the chanting of the Gayatri Mantra, it starts Om, invocation of all that is and can be. Bahur, which includes the earth and water, the tamasic part of our reality. Bhuva, the heat and the breath and the movement of our reality. And then Swa, the emptying and the ascent. Mm. Okay, to be able to emplace those outside and inside. What a gift we had in that yoga training. And this book, all these decades later, is homage to that experience. And reflecting back, and this is where um, there's some slogan that, um, you know, the youth and the energy and the strength of old age, of, of youth, okay, um, really can be trumped by the experience of old age. But I just want to go through a little bit of philosophical narrative that in my 20s, I wrote my first book, which is about human agency. Mm -hmm. And the reason I had to write that book is that I felt so powerless. And particularly in the pathway of academia, you were rendered powerless in each and every class. You were rendered powerless in being tested constantly through your comprehensive exams. You're rendered powerless by that committee of five that assessed your dissertation. Mm -hmm. You're kept powerless by all the peer review, by all of the humiliations of the rejections that inevitably come again and again. So I had to write that book called Karma and Creativity, which is that, no, there really is the capacity to develop your will, to make your way in the world. And then in my 30s, okay, so my first academic supervisor, Robert Neville, who went on to become Dean of Religion and Theology at Boston University, I showed up at a party right when I'd finished defending my dissertation. He said, so what is your next project? And it was like a deer in the headlights. And this was the summer of Three Mile Island where the meltdown had happened and where the environmental issues were confronting um, really for the first time full naming within philosophy. And I said, I want to marry ahimsa and ecology and environment. And I had had the blessings of studying with Thomas Berry, who himself had just come through his Chinese phase of the 40s, his Sanskrit phase of the 50s and 60s and a study of Buddhism, his Native American encounter of the 70s, and his realization that eventually became the dream of the earth, that we have to give honor to the earth or we will perish. So that became my ethical project. The book of my 30s is called Nonviolence to Animals, Earth, and Self in Asian Traditions. And this was an environmental take on Hinduism, on yoga, on Buddhism, and my discovery of Jainism, particularly in India. And then in my 40s, 
the question of pluralism loomed. I discovered that the Jains in India in the eighth century grappled with their particular way of viewing the world and being in the world in light of Buddhism, in light of Vedanta, in light of Tantra, and in light of yoga. And they negotiated. They retained their own worldview and lifestyle in a sea of competitors. And they've maintained all those years. And I thought, this is the model that we need after Rodney King. Yeah. This is the model that we need in Los Angeles. We are constantly negotiating so many cultures. And when I returned to New York, and particularly to Long Island, which was literally black and white in those days, and I see that the Stony Brook of 80% Jewish is now the Stony Brook of 80% Asian, and that all of this pluralism that I'd first experienced in California has now become the norm on both coasts and is making its way into the heartland. I thought, okay, so I found this Sanskrit text called Yogadrishti Samuchaya, which sets forth a template for how we can all get along. And then in my 50s, where I had tried it out, and like yourself, I had created uh, a yoga teacher training. And I said, yeah, I was grandfathered into Yoga Alliance. Um, that was one of the easiest things I ever had to do. <laughs> added up hours, not even including the practice. It was 2,000 hours of straight training that I received from my gurus. And, and it was um, even then so much more to live and experience. But I took those considered reflections on the Yoga Sutra and wrote about them in terms of social justice, particularly in terms of feminism, in terms of plural plurality, and reminded people of how do we start our spiritual practice? We start our spiritual practice by a commitment to nonviolence, to truthfulness, as did Gandhi, as did my guru, as did Aurobindo, as did Vivekananda as did all of, all of the greats. And now that I'm in my 60s, um, pulling it together in terms of ritual. Now, I grew up in a loosely Methodist household, which meant low church. I'm a theologian now, so I you know, do church history and I teach these things. But the Wesley brothers, um, some couple hundred years ago, said we have to honor what Pelagius said in a certain sense. We don't want to assume that everybody's sin, sinful from birth, that people make choices. And they put a lot of emphasis on youth, where I got um, involved beyond just Sunday school, where they said, yeah, hang out, be yourselves, be together. And we sold pizzas, we went to Montreal, we went to Expo 67, we experimented, we were crazy. And I took that into Quaker meeting. And when I was 15, uh, met and married my wife in Quaker meeting in the very room I, we met. And with Quakers, they said, yeah, we gotta get rid of slavery. And they were the ones that scripted feminism. They were the ones that scripted abolition. And we embedded ourselves in that continuous commitment really to 
self-improvement and self-improvement leads to worldly improvement. And then the Zen Buddhist meditation that I embraced even earlier at the age of 13, Philip Kaplow had established the uh, Zen Center of Rochester, New York, and I and my friend went and interviewed him and got his advice, and I did a major project. I actually have been teaching my ninth grade presentation for decades and decades. <laughs> and it was so amazing to um, move into the world that was uh, the world of the Dalai Lama, the world of Zen, all of that professionally as well. At Stony Brook, we um, were graced with the presence of a research institute that invited in Mahagosananda, the man who single-handedly saved Cambodian Buddhism, uh, met with Chogyam Trungpa as he was doing his best to promulgate Tibetan Buddhism here. So many of the wonderful heroes. I was um, in colleagueship, even as, as an undergraduate with Robert Thurman, and my own Tibetan and Sanskrit teacher, um, Christopher George. So um, part of the perplexity of joining a, an ashram where we did full pranam, an ashram where we didn't have any gods and goddesses, but my job as Pujari for six years was to kindle the living presence of the god Agni twice a day to chant the Gayatri Mantra that the four corners of the universe at sunrise and at sunset, to be present and design seasonal holidays in honor of the greatness of the earth in the spring, the greatness of the earth in summer, the greatness of the elements in the fall, and the greatness of the elements in the darkness of the winter. Very devotional and very creative and the devotion was to, and I recently learned that my guru, in her choice of vocabulary, betrayed her ancestral roots. And one of the miracles of our ashram, unheralded, and it was scripted, and her first proclamation of her creation was, this ashram is open to everybody. Mm. And a colleague, just a couple of years ago, took the name of my guru, her surname was Inti, and told me, Assam, told me tribal, which explained everything. The Brahmin families, the doctors and the lawyers who had taken up in the 70s on Long Island would visit the ashram once and they would not return. And what she invoked was not Brahman, which she invoked was not Krishna or Rama. She invoked Mirabai, but she did not invoke any of the traditional pantheon. She invoked Mahadev and the elements. Mm. And in her tribal theology, she saw the whole world as divine including every aspect of the human function. And that move into a universalized ritual has stuck with me since training in it. And all of our experience, all of our training was inductive. We were given things to do, and it was up to us to figure out the theory. 
and we had our theory classes. As soon as we found out that the Sankhya is or text for the Yoga Sutra, we spent an entire year, once a week, going verse by verse by verse through the Sankhya and its commentaries so that we could understand how the Yoga Sutra is structured. And we immersed ourselves in the sound and the language and in the, in the mantras and in the chanting. We um, collectively memorized the second pada of the Yoga Sutra in Sanskrit, chanted it through all simultaneously together. We memorized the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, 72 verses, but in English. That too was another sort of crazy experience. <laughs> But this final book is a recovery of ritual mm. in all of the traditions. And in going back to the Vedas, where we find the first um, organized invocation of Prithvi, the earth goddess, of Jal, the presence of water, of Agni, the fire god, of Vayu, the god that moves us, and even of space the God that, in a sense, cannot be conceptualized or named. We see that by the time of Buddhism, by the time of the Buddha, systematic reflection on that was actually the practice that the Buddha taught to his own son, Rahula. And there's a beautiful story that is um, interlaced through this book, where there was a young man who um, had taken up Buddhist meditation on his own, and was a newbie at it, but was really enthusiastic about what he had learned from some of the Buddhists. And he asks a, a farmer, hey, can I stay here tonight? I'm wandering, it's the monsoon, will you give me shelter? And the, and the, and the, um, the farmer said, yeah, you can stay. You can stay in the loon too, in the back over there behind the animals. Uh, but there's another meditator back there, so, but just to, you know, just give him his space. So he goes back there and they end up staying up all night meditating. And they meditate on the earth. They meditate on water. They meditate on fire. They meditate on air. They meditate on the vastness of space. And then they get a little bit of sleep and then they wake up. And then it dawns on this young man, oh my gosh, are you the Buddha? And the Buddha says, yeah. And he says, oh my God, I was so like familiar with you. Please forgive me. And then he begs the Buddha and he says, may I take vows from you? I want to become a monk. And the Buddha says, well, first, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll have a little ceremony. I'll get some people together, but go get some robes because you have to have robes to be a Buddhist monk. And there's a whole series of rules about the robes and the bowl and the haircut and all that stuff. So he goes out to get his, his robes. But as he's gathering his robes, he's speared, he's gored by a, a bull that's got loose in the village and he dies. So the monks come to the Buddha and they say, wow, that was bad karma. <laughs> He must have been a real loser. <laughs> but what the Buddha does is he says, no, he was an arhat. 
I declare him to be one of what will be 500 that will be freed through my teachings. And I sat with him and his meditation was perfect. Okay. So all you need are the five elements. Mm. So beautiful story. And what we did, I spent about 20 years gathering literature from the Yoga Vasishta, gathering literature from the earliest Hindu articulation of this, which is the Markandeya Purana, putting it freshly into English, and then discovering in communication with my Jain uh, colleague friends and scholars in India, I found a Jain text that works with the elements in a very unusual way. So that was the birth of this book, to say that where does ritual happen? Ritual happens externally, but it always invokes the presence of the five great elements. Meditate, do puja, establish this rapport, and what more do you need? Mm. So that's the book. Yeah, that's beautiful. And what an incredible message. I think that, you know, it seems like the the ritual component is sort of lost on a lot of people. And and one thing that I really appreciated about your book is just the way that it 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 invites um it invites the experience of meaning through these particular rituals and, and of course the 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 relationship with the with the elements is a sort of timely suggestion or invitation you know by you considering how necessary and um and and poignant it is to develop a kind of ecological awareness and so this is sort of like seems to me like this is the the way that yogis can really start to align themselves with an ecological understanding if they don't already have some or one of the ways one of the practical ways to kind of cultivate that relationship so one thing i wanted to ask was that you um is that from what i understand you know sometimes we the 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 western tradition talks about just four elements so i was just wondering if you thought there was a significant what would the significance was of the the fact that one of the elements gets left off in the western tradition do you think there's anything to be said about western culture that that one that the i guess it's akasha right it's space that's usually missing yeah, it's also there in some of the texts. If we okay. look at, you know, Plotinus, I think he talks about ether and okay. um, vestiges of it in Aristotle. And the Chinese do it differently. The Chinese add metal in and, um, and they have sort of a four element system. Um, and yeah, what I love about this, and this is sort of from the Jain uh, non-absolutist perspective, is that there's so many different ways to engage this. What I find grounding about the elements is that they have been so constant. Mm -hmm. What I found really thrilling about the Jain text, which is from about a thousand years ago, is that they mix up the order. So that in, instead of earth, water, fire, air, space, what they do is that they, yeah, they start with earth, but what they invoke above the earth is fire to burn up your nasty karmas to purify you. And then with the fire, they uh, encourage people, and it's actually specified to breathe really rigorously 30 times. And that 30 powerful breath sequence will bring out the sweat, will bring out the water, will cosmically, macrocosmically bring down the monsoon. And I just came out of the monsoon in India, and oh, it's just so 
refreshing and cleansing and so archetypal. But the monsoon cleanses you and it's water that allows you to move into your pure visage, which is identical, not separable from the enlightened being called the jinnah. So that's Jainism. And it's, it's different. So yeah, I, I, I love, I got a question the other day. Why do some people say five koshas and some people say seven koshas? <laughs> and I have to say, yeah, aren't they great? They're all, you know, they're functional. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so now I want to ask, we're sort of, we're nearing the end of our time here and this has been such an interesting conversation. Um, but I want to end actually on something that you had brought up in, um, the interview, very short interview, written interview that you did with, um, someone from Sutra Journal. And, um, and it sort of relates to the experience of, you know, that vastness or spacious or emptiness that you're talking about. And it was, um, or maybe I'm creating the connection, but anyway, one of the things you mentioned was the challenge that you felt to reconcile um, the non, the no, not self, the, you know, the, 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 um, the teaching of no self within Buddhism and the cap, big capital S self from, from Hinduism Vedanta. And, and, and you said, you say that, I think you said anyway, in the interview that it was the yoga Vasishta that, that offered a kind of way to reconcile what in my, uh, this is actually, I'm asking this actually almost for personal reasons, because my partner and I often get in these arguments about emptiness versus fullness and stuff like this. And, um, and so, uh, I understand that there are, you know, sort of two sides of looking at it, but I would love to hear sort of what in your own um, exploration, what was it that led to your ability to reconcile these seemingly opposite um, teachings? It's a great question. And in Sankhya philosophy, which everybody loves to hate, which is yeah, why right. I like to bring it in because I like to be a provocateur. <laughs> The Hindus hate it, the Buddhists hate it, you know, everybody, Shankara hates it, but their premise is that there's Purusha and Prakriti, and that Prakriti, out of her unity, creates the multiplicity in 23 modalities that is the experience of the world. And the text goes on to say that the experience of the world is essential for the emergence of Chit for the emergence of those moments of the dawning of and you know the um the movement in social justice now is now like getting woke okay and awakenings come at all different levels but those aha moments they're the ones that we're really looking for and what is the connection point and the connection point according to the yoga vasishta is a dynamic within the buddhi which is the first stirring of the prakriti toward the created life toward the manifested life it's a modality called parusha now purusha is the word for that chit that word for that consciousness and is the placeholder for freedom and parusha again this is why it's so important to know sanskrit is a vritti form of purusha. Okay, purusha is that elevated sense of, of life, 
Prakriti is the day-to-day -day of life, and Parusha is the connecting derivative point that is a little bit like Prakriti, and it's a little bit like Purusha. In Sankhya, it says that, yeah, you know that you really aren't the Purusha. The Yoga Sutra says the same thing. The minute that you think you are who you are when you're that spiritual being, you've set yourself up as a candidate for pain. And I love to remind people that all of the mighty have fallen, and that the truly enduring people allow themselves to fall every day so they don't fall into hubris. And, you know, guru after guru who has bought his or her own divinity gets humbled. And we've seen this happen rather yeah. in ugly ways again and again. So parusha is really, really important in this regard because you always have to maintain that edge that keeps you in that place of humility. But the answer is an abundance of sattva. An abundance of sattva allows for the stirring up of jnana. It allows for exactly what the Buddha and the Sankhikarika agree upon. And it's this, it's naham, nasmi, Name. Naham, this I that I have is not going to continue. Okay? And I remember I have a picture of myself when I was about 24 years old. I was on the verge the next year of getting my PhD. And I only have one photograph from that year. And I look awesome. <laughs> I mean, I look so good. I hadn't quite lost all my hair. <laughs> My acne had calmed down. I had a really nice sort of reddish black beard. And my glasses were timeless in terms of their style. Or No, I had already got my contact lenses, which I did for 15 years. So I was just looking so good. And I was so relieved because I felt good to be done with the acne. Yeah. And I felt good because I, you know, just had that youthful energy. And at the same time, I was in that horribly humiliating place of getting ready for my exams and my thesis. And, but I looked good. I really did look good. And then the years go by. And when you have babies, there's this thing called kuvad, but you put on a few pounds, even though you're not carrying the baby. And then there's the whole middle age thing. And then you sort of get it back. And I love the old wisdom story of um, the rabbi and the priest and the Protestant minister, and they're debating the origin of life. And the origin of life, according to the Catholic, the priest says it's, according to Thomas Aquinas, the quickening, when there's the feeling in the womb that the baby is moving. And the Protestant, who is sort of up on the science, says, no, 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 it comes from the time of conception. And we have to stamp out the scourge of abortion. But then the rabbi sort of leans back. And I was on Long Island for a long time, okay? Yeah. But I lost my capacity to really do the Long Island accent, <laughs> affiliated, associated with good Jewish folk. But he says, honey, no, <laughs> life begins. 
when the last kid graduates from college <laughs> and the dog dies. <laughs> and I've been there. Okay, the kids graduated from college and the dog died. And you're really ready to fully live life. And then the gray starts to really set in, okay? So your aham is constantly in flux, okay? The I of 24 is not the I of 64. I'm not there yet, but the Beatles sing so gloriously about it, and it seems so remote. But hopefully, with the blessings of long life, you'll get there. And that means naham. You can't fix it in any one moment. And then the things, okay? Asmi means I am in the sense of I do. And I've done it. I've been a student. I've done it. I've been a married person. I am a married person. I'm doing it. I still am a student. I've done it. I've gotten degrees. I've done it. But is any of that doing really who you are? And the answer is no. A, because there's more to do. And B, because what you've done isn't here anymore. And then three, Buddha, Sankhikarika, wisdom, freedom, the fruits of parusha, making that connection, is na me. Nothing that you own defines you. Your books, yeah, okay, but they don't last forever. Your clothes, no, they go out of style. Your hairdo, okay, nature may take it away from you, or a razor, or whatever it may be, okay? You don't, that tattoo, okay? I don't see any, but, you know, <laughs> I remember when the tattoo started, I, you know, 30 years ago, I said, what's going on? And I had to be schooled in this thing. But even those tattoos, even they seem so permanent, but no, they're going to shift because the skin is going to change. Okay, so letting it all go, that's the wisdom of freedom. And that's the gift we prepare ourselves for, but the gift we can never own. Mm -hmm. So that's how I reconcile the no self and the self. That if ever you want to call it a self, you got to know it's this thing that can't be called anything. Yeah. And that's how, that's how I got it. That's Put beautiful. That's such a as we move forward. Yeah, what an incredible way to describe that and explain that um, reconciliation. Wow, Chris, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. So um, to wrap things up, I'd just like to give you an opportunity. Obviously, we've talked a lot about LMU, and, and so I'm anticipating people looking you up in, in that direction, but are there any workshops or anything that you're participating in coming up that you wanna share with the audience? Yeah. Um, we have a cascade of events. We have a cascade of events. Cascade nice. every fall, <laughs> big event time. But we open the campus for Yoga Day. We have hundreds of people come on campus. We culminate. We're going to have an amazing concert with a, a Chinese Tibetan uh, shaman woman with a full band. Her name is Miao. That's uh, Saturday, September 16th. Then we're doing a two-day honoring of Ayurveda on Friday, October 6th, and Saturday, October 7th. And if you see this in years to come, just go to the website, and there will be a refreshing of something new coming along. But every year, we give an award to honor someone who has brought together cultures. Uh, our first award, uh, more than 10 years ago, went to Deepak Chopra. 
We've honored Vandana Shiva, who is India's leading feminist agriculturalist activist. We've honored Zubin Mehta, who has brought music uh, across generations and across cultures and done work in the West Bank. We've honored um, Thich Nhat Hanh, and uh, nothing so wonderful as meditating with the man who brought the Vietnam War to resolution. Yeah. It, was, it was so great. And this year we're honoring the entire system of Ayurveda. We're bringing people over from India and bringing scholars and researchers from all over the United States uh, to celebrate what they're managing through mantra and through herbs and through meditation. And we're giving the award to John Hagelin, who is the president of Maharishi University of Management. So, um, and we have a number of wonderful speakers coming, ongoing um, rolling admissions for our Master of Arts in Yoga Studies. And every season we start new array of certificates, which are for all learners. And we're looking to launch eventually a low residency version of our program that will allow people to come to Los Angeles, experience Los Angeles, but then connect um, through the internet uh, live with our classes and go back and pay their Midwestern rent of $200 or whatever <laughs> my fantasy apartment might cost oh elsewhere my gosh. in the country. Uh, and then also we spend time in India and then a third summer be back again. On that's, that's really wonderful. So, and then you had also mentioned before we started the interview that there's actually a, 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 um, a PhD in contemplative studies on the horizon. How, how, how many years do you think until that's going to be realized? Oh, I just met with our provost and okay. in years past, it's always taken five years to incubate something. Yeah. Incubating, we have a lot of raw material and polished material. And maybe if this provost is, um, is true to his word, maybe it can come a little bit sooner than later. But the trend in higher ed is to acknowledge that does a PhD mean that you will become a professor? It's never been guaranteed. It's a very difficult path. It is, yeah. But what we would do is prepare people with a little bit of psychology, a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of theology, a lot of yoga, a lot of different pathways of meditation, um, applied and this would prepare them to meet the needs of young people if there are um, academic vacancies not only on the academic side in departments but also on the student services side because colleges are overwhelmed by the anxiety of young people and the best tool we all know in the research shows is meditation and yoga and then, of course, there's always the entrepreneurial um, zest that yogis bring. And wouldn't it be nice to have a PhD? So, yeah, it's a fantasy, but fantasies can become realities. Yeah, certainly. And it's, you know, as of this recording, it's 2017, but these, these podcasts live on. So maybe if someone's listening to this in 2022, which is hard, it's hard to even say that, but yeah. uh, if you are, um, then maybe you can check up on LMU and see if that program has been launched. All right, Chris, it's been such a pleasure, and um, I've really enjoyed speaking with you, and uh, I hope to speak with you again soon. Great. Thanks.